wild. Hello, everyone. Hi, listeners. Welcome to episode 22 of I'm Horrified. Woo! With Sam Buntage. And Allie Rayner. And we're here. And we're here. We're so glad you're here. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. We're not horrified at all. We're gonna have to work up to that. I know. How are we even gonna do the podcast? I don't know. I'm so happy right now. Uh, not for long. I know. I just ate a very healthy salad, so I'm feeling very in control of my life. Look at you. I know. I'm glowing. Uh, you really are. It's the first time my body's had, like, a parsnip in 20 weeks. Oh my god. To be next to you right now, you're, like, luminous. I'm luminous. It I might was... be the computer reflecting off your pale white skin. Oh yeah. That's a big one. But it, it still is beautiful. Yeah, effect. that's me at my hottest, <laughs> I think. Me in front of, me in front of a screen. Sam, what are we going to talk about today? Today we're going to talk about two very exciting subjects, both of which I didn't know much about until this minute. And we hope that neither of you knew anything about it either. I'm going to talk about the Milgram experiment. Which I don't know what that is. And I'm going to talk about Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark. And because I went to theater school, I do know what that is. Absolutely. And I also saw it many years ago, but I do not remember anything. (laughs) So this will be as fresh for me as it is for all of you listeners. Actually, I hope you end up remembering some things because I'd love to hear what it was like in performance. I hope I have like very traumatic flashbacks. Yeah, And I'm just like, oh my god, I remembered this thing and he crashed into a pole. (laughs) Yeah. All this stuff. I I remember leaving and being like, that was as bad as everyone thought, Mm -hmm. but I don't remember why, and that's where you come in. Oh my god, maybe we'll figure it out together. But first, let's figure out the Milgram experiment together. The Milgram experiment. Alright, so let's get started. So in order to give context for this topic, I'm going to have to start where all horrifying subjects begin, with a Nazi war criminal. Oof. You gotta start there. Starting strong. Yeah, ain't that always the way? Starting bold. Yep. Um, I'm unfortunately going to have to introduce you to Adolf Eichmann. Um, Adolf, a name that went out of fashion around 1945. Absolutely. Um, I've heard of him, I think. Did you really? I feel like I have. They all sound the same to me. Um, He was a lieutenant colonel for the SS. His actual title was Obersturmbannführer, but we all know I didn't pronounce that correctly. (laughs) Um, So this guy was integral to overseeing mass deportations of Jews and other marginalized communities into ghettos and ultimately into extermination facilities. I'm assuming that everyone kind of knows the general what happened. During this time in history, it's it's very upsetting and it's very complicated, so we're, we're not going to go into that. We're not going to recap the Holocaust on this podcast. We will never do that. Probably I'm not. I'm just going to, I'm going to say that right now. But focusing on him, after Germany's defeat in 1945, he fled to Austria for a little bit and then to Argentina until 1960, where he was discovered and brought to trial. And I read that and I was like, why is that always such a thing? Like, why did all the Nazis go to Argentina? I just wanted to be warm. But, like, why Argentina? There's so many other South American (laughs) countries. Like, poor Argentina just getting this boatload of Europe's least desirable cargo, like, Uh immediately after one of the greatest tragedies of all time. Yeah. I I don't imagine that they wanted that. So, basically, uh, Adolf Eichmann is brought to trial in Jerusalem. And when the trial began, Hannah Arendt, who is a popular German-American philosopher and political theorist, began writing essays and articles um, for The New Yorker surrounding the trial, and more specifically discussing who Eichmann was as a person. So she studied his mannerisms and the way he conducted himself on the stand and took an interest in his humanity and kind of the person that he was. And that was a really controversial thing at the time, and it landed her in some hot water because a lot of her audience were saying that she was defending him, that she was excusing his behavior, you know, that she was, like, you know, not really taking seriously the plight Mm -hmm. of what he had put people through. And... You know, I read a a lot of interesting articles that I'll probably link to on Twitter, kind of examining how she wrote about him. 
and I read some of her work as well, and to me, I can definitely see how that would have been controversial at the time, but I think in a sense she was misunderstood because what she was ultimately trying to do was really investigate this question of evil. Yeah. You know, like, this question of, like, why, 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 why did this happen? Mm -hmm. Like, how could this happen? How could people do this to each other for so long on this scale? And that's just, like, what everyone was talking about. Like, how? How could this be happening? And so she kind of took a laser focus on this example. And it was 1960 at this point, so some time had passed. A lot of writing had been done. Everyone was just getting sick over this question and, you know, asking, like, how could this evil exist within us? And so she ended up coining a concept that I've read a lot about in a lot of different psychological texts, such as Philip Zimbardo's work, who I will cover in a future episode. He's the guy behind the Stanford Prison Experiment. Ooh. Um, so I know I will... you've been wanting to talk about yes. the Stanford Prison Experiment. I am up on Zimbardo. Um, he did not age well. <laughs> so she coined this concept called the banality of evil, which basically separates what we normally consider to be the cause of evil, like sadism and sociopathy and, like, fanatic cult leader energy. Mm -hmm. Big cult energy. <laughs> <laughs> fanatic cult energy, BC, Lord. Um, you know, like, those kinds of traits and separated those from the elements of evil that grow from, like, thoughtlessly and obligingly following rules. Mm. So there's this aspect of evil that brushes right up next to, like, the theory of conformity, which is that you can tell yourself, like, oh, you're just following orders, so you remove that responsibility from yourself, and you place it onto the situation, or you place it onto who's in charge, and so you're perpetrating this terribleness, which ultimately does make you terrible, but it's, it is different. It's not coming from you wanting to inflict pain, it's coming from this conformity and, and thoughtlessness was really the root yeah. of the kind of thing she was describing was you're really not actually thinking about what it is that you're doing. You're thinking about what you're doing in this box that people have created for you, like this world that the Nazi party has given you, you've just accepted it and you're working within it mm -hmm. and you know what it's leading to, but you're just, you've created new morals for yourself. So that is like a really interesting topic to me. And, and so the, the important thing, I think, to take away from this was that Hannah Arendt was not by any means saying that Eichmann wasn't, like, a total piece of shit. She acknowledged that he was anti-Semitic, like, outwardly so. He jumped into the Nazi movement and started waving those flags, mm -hmm. just like everyone else. Too into it. He was too, too into, into it. it. You know, there's no amount that you can be into it that's cool, no, is no. what I would posit. Not even a little bit. Um, not even a little, not even a toe, you guys. <laughs> Beware out there. So Hannah was noticing that he wasn't a particularly sadistic person by nature, and he didn't really think of his own actions as immoral, but obviously the things he was doing were insanely horrible and horrific, mm -hmm. and so in that discovery she opened up to this concept, and it's something that's still being discussed today in a lot of different ways, just like the idea of, are you just a follower, mm -hmm. you know, are you being brainwashed by something, mm -hmm. but it's, it's like more than that, it's like, if you're doing something bad... Should the context of your bad doing be taken into consideration? Yeah. Which is really interesting to me. That is interesting. Yeah. So that brings us to our actual topic, which is the Milgram experiment. How long was that preamble? Like, the longest we've had. It was just as, as much as I needed. Perfect. And We're now there. I'm ready to go. We're all in the same place. I'm rip-roaring. Um, so 1961, a whole year later. Wow. How fast it's flown. Um, so... A year has passed since Eichmann's trial and ultimate execution, and Stanley Milgram, who's a psychologist, has some ideas of his own. And 
I didn't really study him a lot because I don't find him important. Good. Um, but <laughs> I stand. He, yeah. Another white psychologist in the 60s. I don't care. <laughs> um, he wanted to conduct an experiment centered around the ideas of obedience to an authority figure that would be in direct contrast to the human conscience. So he hoped to answer the question, could it be that Eichmann and his million accomplices in the Holocaust were just following orders? Could we call them all accomplices? So that's what he did. In 1961, in a Yale University basement, he conducted an experiment to think that Rory Gilmore would be learning (laughs) right above them just 40 years later. My God. It is stirring. So this is how the experiment was constructed. There were three people in the experiment. Two knew what were going on, and one was the subject of the investigation. So two people knew what was actually happening. Okay. So these three people were the experimenter, who was the one running the experiment, the teacher, who was actually the subject of the study, Uh. and the learner, who was an actor who was pretending to also be a volunteer. So in theory, there's the teacher and the learner, and the teacher is teaching the learner who's learning. But the learner's really in on it. The learner is in on it. So the teacher, quote-unquote, thinks that both of them are arriving to do the science experiment, and they don't know what's going on, so that's the setup. So there's one room with an electric shock chair and one room with a switchboard, and the teacher, the subject, goes into the room with the switchboard, which seemingly operates the electric chair. And so that's where the learner, who's Mm -hmm. the actor, goes and is supposedly strapped to that chair, but there's a wall separating the switchboard from the chair. So the person, the subject who's operating the switchboard can hear the person who's being affected by the chair, but they can't see them. Interesting. And that's important because the person who's acting isn't actually being shocked, uh, <laughs> obviously. So the task of the teacher and learner in this experiment is for the learner to learn word pairings, and then the teacher will test the learner. So just to reiterate, the unwitting subject will test the actor who is in on the scheme. Yes. <laughs> um, but the test subject will shock the learner in increasing voltages every time the learner gets an answer wrong. Oh. So every time they make a mistake... The experimenter who's in charge of anything is like, oh, he made a mistake, you have to give him a shock. Like, oh, that's a second mistake, you have to increase the voltage. And that's supposedly how they're going to learn, Mm. you know. So I think the subject would probably be like, oh, well, they're probably studying this other guy. Yeah. You know, but they're actually studying his behavior and what he does as the experiment progresses. So as the experiment moves forward, the shock levels naturally increase because, of course, the learner is going to get things wrong. And so the subject then has to shock them with increasing voltage, or so they think. And the actor responds with increasing levels of pain from supposed voltages, which the subject can hear. So the subject can hear every time he presses a button. At first it's you like, know, ow, but then it's like, oh! Yes, exactly. Like, ah. So it keeps increasing, and they can hear the pain being inflicted because they're pushing these buttons, and that's all totally real to them. And then this is something that I forgot about the study when I learned about it, at a certain level of the voltages that are like just before the highest voltage the learner falls silent (gasps) yeah and that's going to become a key portion of the experiment so they're screaming 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 in pain and then if you go above a certain level they fall silent (gasps) so naturally as the supposed learner was screaming in pain the subject would protest and not want to continue the experiment you know like he's like i don't want to push the buttons anymore like i'm done this isn't cool um and in that case the experimenter so the guy in charge of the shebang, could respond with four specific verbal prods in this order. Number one, please continue. Number two, the experiment requires that you continue. Number three, 
it is absolutely essential that you continue. And number four, you have no other choice. You must go on. So those were the things that they would say in succession as the subject put up, like, a fight or asked to stop the experiment. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. And that's across the board. That's what all the experimenters would say in a succession. Um, And if the subject still protested and refused after all of those verbal prods, they would stop the experiment. I mean, obviously, because they're, Mm. in that case, like, they're like, no, I'm not going to press the buttons anymore. Yeah. The jig is up. Otherwise, they would continue until the subject administered three 450-volt shocks in succession. That would have been a deadly amount of voltage. (gasps) Did they? They they... didn't know that. Okay. But that would have been. Holy shit. Yeah. So what were the results? The senior psychology class at Yale predicted that by the 350-volt shock, which is like the second-to-last shock level, when that victim fell silent after screaming in pain... They predicted that only 3.73% of participants would continue onto the 450-volt shock, which is the highest number. Mm-hmm. Sam, how many people do you think ultimately move forward God. to the final amount of voltage? Just because I don't believe in humanity, like, all of them. But probably, like, <laughs> I would say 60%. Oh my god, you're so close. 65%. Fuck me! 65%. I was Yeah, you're hoping you were wrong. No. 65% of people continued moving forward with the experiment to the maximum possible voltage even after their learner had fallen silent in the other room. And the psychology class thought it would be like 3%. They thought it would be 3% of all people. What the fuck? And so the experimenters described the tension experienced by the subjects ranging from stuttering, digging at their own skin, rocking back and forth, groaning. This is just the person pressing the buttons. Mm-hmm. Like hysterical fits of laughter, like... Even seizures, like, they would just absolutely freak out, but they would keep going. And, like, that was one of the most fascinating things about the experiment. However, many of those experiencing those symptoms just, like, move forward no matter what. (laughs) And this experiment has been remounted across the world with similar results regardless of location. Wow. Yep. It's been performed hundreds and hundreds of times at this point. That's wild. Yeah, to the point where they've had to limit their pools of subjects because so many people know about this experiment. Yeah. So, like, if you brought me into a room, like, I would be like, I remember this from AP Psychology. Yeah, where um, So there are some caveats to this because the initial question was, like, talking about Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> and this situation is vastly different than actual Nazis engaging in actual crimes against humanity for some pretty important reasons. Number one being, if the subject asked the experimenter if the person in the chair was going to be permanently hurt, the experimenter would respond with this. Although the shocks may be painful, there is no permanent tissue damage, so please go on. So you could argue deniability there. Yeah. But I don't really buy that, because in theory, they're screaming in pain, and then all of a sudden they fall silent. Yeah, that, you the, know what I mean? The silence is the thing that I'm like, oh, fuck Yeah, me. like, that's a, if, that's a huge red flag. So, like, if you're not, you know, because you as a person have to be like, well, they could be lying. You yeah. know what I mean? They could not know. But then again, if you're a student at Yale, which these people probably are, and somebody... I don't think they were. Oh, I think the experimenters were... I think they were just people brought in from off the street. Word. And naturally, the first batch of 100... Or the first batch of 100 people were, I think, mostly all white men. Classic. Um, but if somebody in a white lab coat is telling you, like, this yeah. is fine, Yes, going, exactly, I agree. Like, fair and... Like, I would... I can't help but think that at first, at least... I would be like, all right, if he's telling me, just keep going, maybe this learner is a real I trust anyone idiot. wearing a name tag. Yeah. If you're wearing one of those, like, white, shiny hospital badges, I believe you. Yeah. 
So then the other reason that it's very different is their actions were not motivated by an ideology. Yes. Such as xenophobia or racism. Um, it was in a clinical setting, and both parties began the experiment by consenting to it. Or at least that's what the subject believed. Mm-hmm. Number three, Nazis understood that what they were doing would lead directly to mass death. Yes. <laughs> and that was, in theory, not the goal of this experiment. <laughs> um, so that's pretty different. And then the last one I feel a little torn about. So this exp- the way it was sort of laid out was this experiment lasted one hour while the war crimes of the Holocaust spanned several years. And that one, like, that's obviously very, very true. However, I'm a little more wary on the applicability of that difference because I feel like psychologically human beings find it so much harder to change their behavior once they've started it. That's real. Do you know what I mean? Like, even if it's the most, like, inhumane, horrific behavior you could think of, like, people do what's familiar to them. So, like, I could see somebody, like, once they've justified something in their head, they're like, well, I'm not going to change now because that would mean that I made a mistake before. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people, like, human beings, that cognitive dissonance, which cognitive dissonance I should have be a subject <laughs> on this podcast, like, that cognitive dissonance just, like, wrecks human beings. Yeah. You know what I mean? And being able to push through it makes you smarter, but so many people don't do that. So I could see the kind of person who would let this happen for an hour being the kind of people who would just go along with it. Yeah. I, I kind of can see that. So part three, takeaways. Oh, gosh. <laughs> what are the takeaways from this? And the questions that I wrote down are, can we be evil? Is there evil lurking inside us all? Yes. Um, yes. Do you think so? I think yes. You think yes? Yeah. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't know how else to do, but like yeah, like That's a bold response. I think under the right horrifying circumstances, like any one of us could have grown up and become like super evil. I think some of it uh, some people are like predetermined for it because maybe they have like sociopathy or maybe they were like raised in a really violent shitty environment, but yes, like yes. I think I think all those factors are true, but I think personally I think that the actual horrifying thing that we have to grapple with is that evil is relative. Mm. And, like, what I mean to say by that is that, because I actually don't really believe in evil. Like, I believe in immorality and I believe in, like, fucked up shit. But I actually really don't believe in, like, evil. Mm-hmm. Um, so then that sentence would turn into, for me, morality is relative. Mm. You know, or it appears to be at the very least. Like, I really believe that there is a compass that points to right and wrong in everyone, regardless of your circumstance, you know, because there are so many, there are so many examples of people who've been placed in a totally skewed moral world who still find it within themselves to say, this isn't right, this isn't right for me, you know, like people who are part of a fascist regime or an oppressive cult or even like something as small as like an abusive household, like, you know, like you grow up in that and that's all you know. But there is this underlying thing of, I can still connect with people, I can still love, I can still, you know, reach out and be good to another person. And, like, you know, there is proof that you can do that no matter what. Mm -hmm. Like, no matter what your circumstance is. But it works the other way. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, like, the thing that I'm cautiously optimistic about is that, like, there is this shared knowledge of goodness and connection that can outweigh that, you know? But the truly horrifying thing is that, like, if people aren't evil, which I don't think they are, they make choices to free themselves of the responsibility of other people's pain. Yeah. That, to me, is what evil is. You're making a choice to free yourself from being responsible for what you're, 
from what you're doing. Yeah. Which is causing another person pain. That's real. Or robbing another person of their power, you know? And that's, that's what's scary. And we see it constantly right now. You know, like, what's happening in our country, like, the, the obvious, like, topic of right now, like, mothers being ripped away from their children. There are people in this country who, because of the way that they've scaffolded their own ethics and morality, that's okay. Mm -hmm. And they're making the choice to not bring themselves back and give themselves a broader perspective and say, is this right? Does this feel right? Mm -hmm. And I believe that deep down in your soul, everyone knows that's wrong. Yeah. But you can, you can dress up your feelings in all of this scaffolding and all of this, all of these rules and laws, like laws are just another type of rules, you know, like the Nazis had laws, like, yeah. <laughs> now I'm getting off the rails, I'm getting very Marxist, but like, <laughs> laws aren't morality. Yeah. They help to enforce it sometimes, but they're not morality, and I feel like if you're able to give yourself a list of rules or adopt them from an outside force that is that is doing wrong unto the world, that's the banality of evil. Mm. And it's really just freeing yourself from that responsibility of other people's pain. Yeah. Which is fucking horrifying in its own right, you know what I mean? Like, if it was just this, like, dark black seed that, like, will or will not grow into evil in every little child that you place it in, like, yes, that would be scary, and that sounds like an amazing horror movie, but, like... (laughs) Or, like, a dystopian AU. Yeah, it does. But, like... That's not it. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's not the reality of day-to-day. Yeah. The worst thing about it is that everybody who is doing those horrible things could make a different choice and are not doing it. But that's also the beautiful thing about it, is that there's always that potential for somebody to make another choice. Work. Don't you think? Yes. No, you're totally right. That's beautiful. Thank you. Oh my god. Also, we should definitely tweet links to, like, some of the great Texas-based organizations that are doing really wonderful work trying to reunite mothers and children yes, who have been separated. Yes. Because, obviously, like, we don't talk about the actual upsetting things that are happening in the world right now. Like, we'd prefer to talk about, like, jelly bracelets. Yeah. I'd always <laughs> um, prefer to talk about jelly bracelets. But I think we're all just collectively shaking and scared. Mm-hmm. And hopefully deeply empathetic to the pain of others. That's which is what's, what's going to keep important. us... That's what's going to keep us human. And yeah. that's... As long as, as long as you cling to that, you're good, mm-hmm. I think. So that's it. That's, oh my gosh. That's the Milgram experiment. That's wild. Isn't it crazy? That's wild that 65% of people killed somebody, like, in the context <laughs> of the experiment. That's not what happened, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. I am right. How would you deal with that if they're, like, after, like, as you're walking out the door, they're like, oh, you killed that guy. And they're like, what? And they're like, not really, but basically. <laughs> I don't know what I do <laughs> What would you do? You're so afraid of conflict. I feel like they'd be like, you have to push it. And you'd be like, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Well, because I, what I accept about myself is that I need everyone around me to like me. But you need the guy screaming in pain to like you too. (laughs) But he can't see me right now. That's true. He's not going to look at you with those those eyes. What if it was me? And I'm just like, Sam, (laughs) Sam, stop. Seriously, stop. Yeah, I believe you could... Talk me down from beyond the wall. I know how to get in your brain. (laughs) I wonder if it makes a difference. I don't know whether or not this happened in the experiment, but, like, 
I wonder if it made a difference if, like, at the beginning of the experiment, the teacher and the learner were like, oh, hi, I'm Greg. Hi, I'm Bill. Nice to meet you. I guess we're going to our opposite ends. Or if they never met. Okay, I thought I was done, but I do have a couple more fun facts oh my on God. that. Which is, so, in one form of the experiment, the learner would let slip conversationally that they had a heart condition. <gasps> so that was part of it. <laughs> it did not alter the results. Oh, my God. No. And so then there was a study that I did not research, so I, I'm not going to talk specifically about it because I really don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but there was a study done years later that was the same format, but they were basically doing control groups of different genders mm. um, or the two binary genders, which are made up. Yeah. And so, like, a man would be doing it to a woman and then they'd have a man do it to a man and they kind of compared results. And there wasn't a lot of... My remembrance is that there wasn't a lot of skew there either. Interesting. And so women displayed higher levels of tension as they were increasing in voltages. However, I don't think it necessarily changed the results. It like, didn't they stop were them. more yeah. outwardly tense, but it didn't necessarily change the results, which I find fascinating. Yeah. And sucky. But, like, fascinating. And also, it's like, at the end of the day, it's like, what does this even mean? <laughs> it doesn't mean they're... It doesn't mean, like, the ones who got to 450 are Nazis, but, like, it doesn't mean they're not. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's truly all I have to say. That's so wild. Crazy, right? Wow. Hey folks, have you visited our friends at adamandeve.com yet? Use our special discount code HORROR at checkout for 50% off almost any item, plus a free gift, plus free shipping. Oh my god, that's H-O-R-R-O-R. Head over to adamandeve.com for some sexy discounts. The only thing sexier than sex is discounts. Mmm, discounts. This is less crazy than that in some ways. But I'd argue in some ways it's more. I think we're just going to need every detail you have. <laughs> and I'm going to throw them yeah. right at you. And you're fine because we're at 27. Cool. So go for it. Oh, my God. And then we'll just, we'll cut any of me screaming uh, if we, we need, need to. <laughs> um, we never cut my screaming. So let's talk about a little musical called Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. Ooh, is that by Sondheim? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wouldn't no. be surprised. So for those of you who aren't big old theater nerds. Where have you been? A, what are you even doing? What did you do in high school? Sports? Lame. B, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark was a Broadway musical which premiered on Broadway in 2010 or 2011, I think. I think it was a 2011 mostly musical that was on Broadway and uh, directed by the wonderful Julie Taymor, music by Bono and The Edge of U2. Love Bono and The Edge, I guess. <laughs> and I'm not not a fan of The Edge. I'm not like, yeah, The Edge, <laughs> but like that is how I feel about Bono. Fair enough. And it has three Broadway records. Number one, it is the most expensive Broadway musical ever. It still is? I think so. It costs $75 million. Jesus. That's a lot. Broadway musicals usually cost like 15 which is still I didn't a lot even know that figure, but I figured it was less than 75. It was. It is. Number 2, it has the most preview performances ever at 182. Jesus Christ. So previews are something that before a Broadway musical opens, they'll do a few shows that will just like get an audience in, but it's understood that like things might change from yeah. the preview and then once the show officially opens, nothing can change. Yeah, a lot of it's from for, like for the theater community, like and not even for the theater community, but, like, to get feedback yes. from an audience. It's like, how is this actually going to land? Yeah. And then you make tweaks. Yeah. Oh, maybe we'll tweak. Yeah. But, they, like, a week of them, you know? Usually it's, like, a month. Yeah. This On was, Broadway, I guess. I'm on Broadway, regional theater. Yeah. <laughs> a re regional theater, it's, like, a week. Broadway, it's, like, a month. 
This had 182. No. And the third record is that it is the biggest recorded Broadway loss ever. They left, so they it was 75 million to produce, and they lost 60 million. Jesus. I keep saying Jesus Christ. <laughs> I am, like, asking the heavens to give me answers about this, but I actually really should ask you. <laughs> I know. And, and I'll answer. So I'm just going to start at the beginning, because the beginning has one story that I didn't know, and it's wild. So it all begins in August of 2002, when Broadway producer Tony Adams got the musical rights for Spider-Man from Marvel. Yeah. And Marvel had never really done a musical before. Like, there's a, there's a Superman musical, funnily enough, called, like, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, Superman, that I also don't think was super good. So, this is a big deal that Tony Adams has gotten these musical rights, because it's 2002, and the Spider-Man movie starring Tobey Maguire just came out. <gasps> I forgot about that. So Spider-Man is having a cultural moment, and Tony Adams, the enigmatic, charismatic, Irish, brilliant producer, so many adjectives. is going to bring it to Broadway. So not only has he got Marvel, but he snags Julie Taymor, the visionary director who made The Lion King cool. The Lion King, which is still running on Broadway to this day. Yeah, that's like one of the great successes of Broadway. Exactly. So Julie Taymor is a huge get. Then, Tony goes even further, and he gets Bono and the fucking Edge to write the music. Whoa! Uh, rock operas had been a thing on Broadway for a while, see Andrew Lloyd Webber, but like, this was 2003 or four at this point, rock musicians had never really written for Broadway. Yeah, American Idiot was not even a thought. Not even, not even a, a sparkle in Billy Joel's eye. I know. Um, but... I'd die for Billy Joel. <laughs> Um, or Billy Joel. Either way. <laughs> oh, yeah, my God. What did I just say? You said Billy Joel, but we're just not saying his last name, which is Armstrong. No, I said Joel. I said Billy Joel. I said I would die for Billy Joel, which I guess is also true, but I'd really <laughs> die for Billy Joel Armstrong. <laughs> and I'm going to leave that all in. We're not cutting that out. Good. <laughs> I'd die for either of them. <laughs> so he's got Bono in the Edge, which is a huge get. It's, I mean, they played the Super Bowl that year. So, like... Oh, yeah, they did! So, they're huge. Was that 2003? I think it was 2002 they played, but, like, he... they Tony Adams started talking oh, to them yeah, in, like, yeah, and they did the big thing for 9-11, and it was a huge deal. Mm-hmm. I remember that. I yeah. remember that. Remember the early 2000s? Oh, it was hard. So, Tony's got this dream team lined up, and they're all in. Julie Taymor signed. Bono signed. And then he went to the Edge's house, literally like, let's do this. And I will let book writer Glenn Berger tell the rest. Yay. Here's the quote. I love a quote. Bono had signed. Julie had signed. Everything was finally coming together. And Edge went to go get a pen. And when he came back, he found Tony Adams slumped over. And Tony Adams, who was still in his 50s, was dead the next day from a stroke. (gasps) What? (laughs) I know! That did not happen. The Edge went to get a pen and Tony Adams died. Died. They should have stopped right there. They sh- that was a that was God trying to intervene. <laughs> that was a horrifying sign oh from God. the heavens. This is a Deus ex Spider Man. <laughs> Literally, yes. So poor Tony Adams, the champion of the project, has dropped dead in the Edge's living room. Jesus Christ! <laughs> I keep saying that. I mean it. And this is not a good sign. But the team is now all on board, and they do not want Tony Adams' dream to die. So his partner, David Garfinkel, takes over production, and the show goes on. Okay. Now, this new producer does not have the artistic vision of Tony Adams. Tony Adams was, like, the guy. Yeah. And this new producer is like, I'm just kind of here because Tony 
would have wanted it. Yeah. I care less about a Spider-Man musical. Yeah, my loins burn less for a Spider-Man musical. So, he gives pretty much total artistic control to Julie Taymor. And we will later learn that Julie Taymor works a little bit better with limits and oversight. Yeah. Which she did not have for this show. Yep. But that's going to become a problem in a couple years. Like, she had a daddy during Lion King who was like, nope, <laughs> yeah, 20 million. Disney was like, nah, nah, nah. nah So, by 2007, we're having readings. So we have a script and some music, and we're starting to compile a cast and getting readings, but things just keep getting pushed back. And by 2009, they are already $25 million in debt. From what? From just the readings. <laughs> Lord. Somehow, Julie Taymor has spent $25 million just on the readings. Oh my god. It's a shitty situation. Because it's like, we've already lost $25 million, should we cut and run? But it's also like, we're already in for $25 million, what's another few million? Yeah. It's a weird place. So they, they kind of, like, it gets halted in 2009 by the original producers, but Bono convinces a producer named Michael Cole to step in, and, like, when Bono comes and is like, hey, pay for my Spider-Man musical, you don't say no. I would never say no to him. It's 2009. I would die for Bono. Let's fucking do this. <laughs> and Michael Cole saves the show. Also in 2009, Julie Taymor gets Evan Rachel Wood and Alan Cumming both on board for the musical as Mary Jane Watson and the Green Goblin, respectively. Oh my god, Alan Cumming played the Green Goblin? Or I guess he, was, he didn't. He was on board he to do it. He was on board to do it. As of 2009. Um, Across the Universe, which is this great movie that Julie Taymor had directed starring Evan Rachel Wood, had come out in 2007. So this was, like, really buzzy that they were going to work together again. And obviously Alan Cumming is Alan Cumming. Oh my god. So for, for 2009, everything is coming up roses for the Spider-Man musical. I believe in 2012 I saw him in his one-man version of Macbeth. Ugh. Ooh. So good. So good. It's I remember good you coming was back to our dorm room and being like, Talking that was about great. It. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. However, this is where things start to get very messy. So Evan Rachel Wood and Alan Cumming both leave the show later in 2009 within a month of each other. So you know something bad is happening back, like, behind the scenes. And Alan Cumming later goes on the record saying, quote, My God, that was a lucky escape. Jesus Christ, talk about dodging a bullet there. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love Alan Cumming. But they announce new leads and they move on. By November 2010, they're finally in previews. Very exciting. Like I talked about, they're, you know, they're in the stage. They're doing it. It costs $1 million a week to run the show. No. But they're doing it. Uh, <laughs> which is uh, very exciting, even though it is super expensive. Then, the opening of the show keeps getting pushed back, and it is ultimately delayed six times. So every month, they're like, it's going to be another month. It's going to be another month. One more month, you guys. It's going to be one more month. Those poor out-of-town ticket buyers. I know, they just the idiots. So the producers are saying more rehearsals are needed because, quote, Miss Tamor and the producers have concluded that Act 2 has storytelling problems that need to be fixed. In 2011, there is one final postponement, which includes a shutdown of previews, which is very rare. Like, once you're in previews, usually you're in previews till you open. Yeah. So the fact that halfway through previews, they were like, actually, we're not doing anything anymore, means that Yikes. there's a, a huge amount of changes happening. And the reason those changes are happening are because Julie Taymor has left the show. Oh, I remember this now. Yes. So why did Julie Taymor leave the show? Julie Taymor is an artist, and she's a visionary. So she's less interested in telling a Spider-Man story than she is in telling a story about myth and legend and the, the, the passing down of, of stories and the way that they grow. 
that's what Julie Taymor is interested in. Sounds like Lion King. In a lot of ways. And the whole time, the producers have been like, yeah, if it's like a spectacle, like, let's go. Yeah, sure, Julie. We, you made Lion King happen. We're in. But so what ends up happening is that it takes up a lot of the plot, this, this story of gods and men. Oh, my God. It's starting to come back to me. So there's a plot synopsis of the Tamor version of uh, Spider-Man. Spoiler alert, a lot of it ends up getting changed for the real Broadway run. But in the Tamor version, there's this character named Arachne, who is an ancient Greek spider goddess, question mark. Same. And she inspires Peter to be a hero. And then she kind of falls in love with him because he's also a spider. So she doesn't have to be alone anymore as the only spider. But then he quits being Spider-Man. So she becomes evil trying to get him to be Spider-Man again. And she kidnaps Mary Jane And then, in a very Phantom of the Opera-esque ending, Peter agrees to be with Arachne if she lets MJ go, and that moment of compassion allows Arachne to see the error of her ways, and she lets them both go, and she ascends into heaven. And that's most of the play. Like, in the Tamor version, Spider-Man defeats Green Goblin at the end of Act 1. And Act 2 is entirely Arachne. (laughs) What? And there's also this device of a geek chorus, like a Greek chorus, but it's a geek chorus. And it's like, they are right, they're trying to write the best Spider-Man story they can. And that's why all of this is happening. And they keep like cutting in and being like, but is this really Spider-Man's greatest villain? Uh, And so obviously, once previews begin, act two is totally panned. People just don't get it. It's so weird. Why does the Green Goblin die at the end of act one when he's like the best part of act one? What the fuck? And the producers are begging her to change it. And even members of the cast are like, hey, maybe this should be focusing on, like, Peter and MJ. And the characters fans of Spider-Man are familiar with. And Julie is not interested in that. (laughs) And she's just like, it's there. I have a spider goddess (laughs) that I'm trying to highlight. Exactly. And I'd like for all of you to just get out of my way. Exactly. So she's so not interested in that. But the producers desperately need these changes to be made because Act 2 is so all over the place. So they're really at a standstill. The producers say, can we hire a script doctor and some other consultants? And Julie says, no. And the producers say, we're going to hire a script doctor and some consultants. And Julie is gone. So they hire, like, another director. And they totally revamp Act 2. So that, like, Arachne still kind of appears, but only in Act 1. And Green Goblin is now probably rightfully the big baddie of Act 2. Yeah. I remember Arachne and I remember being like, why is this happening? Yeah, so it, I think it's really because they had spent so much money on the Arachne getup. They were like, we can't cut her. Yeah. So many songs are about Arachne. This poor woman <laughs> this has already poor gotten fitted. She's getting her equity card. We can't do this to her. <laughs> exactly. So everyone seems to agree that these changes to Act 2 make it better, but the show is still not brilliant. And, and I believe that's what you remember as well, is it? it was not brilliant. Yeah, I remember that. All right. And then the other thing that people remember uh, this show from, besides not being brilliant, is all of the injuries. Yes. So, obviously, because it's a Spider-Man musical, people are, like, flying all over the place, over the audience, upside down, just wild acrobatics. And because of that, at least six performers were injured while working on Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. And the United States Occupational Safety and Health Administration fined the show $12,000 for three serious safety violations. Good. Um, and a couple of my favorites were um, Nellie Mendoza, who was originally cast as Arachne, 
suffered a concussion during the first preview performance when she was struck in the head by equipment. <gasps> but she didn't uh, report the accident until November 30th. And she was, like, going upside down and, like, flying. And she felt so seriously ill that her understudy had to take over the role for two weeks. Then poor Natalie Mendoza comes back on December 15th. And then on December 20th, so five days after Natalie Mendoza is finally like, okay, I'm recovered from my concussion, there's a stunt performer named Christopher Tierney, and he falls more than 20 feet off a piece of scenery. Oh. And he falls through the stage and into the orchestra pit. Oh, my Lord. So after this, Natalie Mendoza quits. I'm done. I'm going to die a, here. They have a new actress playing uh, Arachne, and it's an actress named T.B. Carbio, who was also later injured and had to leave the show for two weeks. Wait, was she in um, Across the Universe? She was. She was um, the, the girl who sings I Want to Hold Your Hand. She was Prudence. Yes. She's really on a, on the nose, that Julie Damore. <laughs> Absolutely. But so, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark finally closed in January of 2014, meaning it ran for about three and a half years. Sweet mercy. And um, upon closing, it had only recouped $15 million, meaning it had a loss of $60 million, and many of the investors have never and will never be repaid. Oof. It was a massive shit show, and I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> and may it go down in infamy. Oh my god. And I've listened to, like, a little bit of the music from it, and it's just not great. For some reason, Bono and the Edge just didn't write a great rock musical. This is what I remember. Um, I remember thinking, wow, this song is interesting. I wish Bono was singing it. Because <laughs> boy, does it sound like somebody doing a U2 cover. Yeah. But that's not what's happening. No, it's a He musical. did this on purpose. Mm-hmm. He did this to me on purpose. Yes. Um, and I had to live with that. You did. So. And I'm glad you've largely wiped it from your memory. Yeah, no, I, I'm kind of twitching all over. Like, oh, I remember this scene with, like, these, like, big, larger than, I remember, like, there was a scene where, like, a crime is happening and all Naturally. of a sudden, like, gangsters in pinstripes, like, from the 1930s. Obviously. Come out with, like, Tommy guns. But it's, like, 2000, what, three? Yeah. The setting of the show. And I remember thinking to myself, because I was, like, a theater nerd at the time, I was like, this is something that Julie Tamor wanted and no one could talk her out of. Yes. And I think I remember thinking something similar about Arachne, which yeah. I guess I was right. You were 100%. I remember just being like, oh, this is artsy bullshit that she clearly put in here. Yeah. Like, she did, like, The Tempest and stuff like yeah. that. And, like, if you're down for artsy bullshit, like, she will do it better than anyone. She's your girl, but... It just you gotta be like down for it. She works great within limits. You just yeah. need to limit Julie Taymor and she'll give you something amazing. And preferably something weird. Like something yeah. experimental. Mm-hmm. And, or maybe even like for kids. Love you know? it. I love that. I'm in. Lion King, amazing. Go the Tempest the was King. beautiful. Across Ugh. the Universe was weird and good. Like, I loved Across the Universe. Me too. Um, but. Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark less. Yeah, she shouldn't take on like a. A franchise that's already fully formed. You know what I mean? Like, The Lion King, like, was kind of like, whatever, let's kind of like a story, and it's mostly about, like, animals and nature, so you can kind of play with it. But, like, Spider-Man is Spider-Man. You know what I mean? Everyone's going to see Spider-Man. Spider-Man doing spider things with Mary Jane Watson or Gwen Stacy, depending on what age you're reading, comic book-wise. But, yeah. I think that was another, like, problem they had going into it was, like, Comic book fans were like, I'm not interested in Spider-Man being made into a dumb musical. And musical fans were like, I'm not interested in them making a dumb comic into a musical. 
So, yeah. like, it was hard to find an audience for it anyways, and then it was so weird on top yeah. of it. But it's, like, if something's good, it can transcend that. Like, yeah. that's what American Idiot did. I'm talking about Billy Joe Armstrong again. I can't stop. Um, but, like, it was really good. Like, it was, I mean, fight me on this, I guess. But, like, it was a good kind of fun rock vibe, and, like, anyone who was kind of coming to Broadway would kind of like it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, people, like, families, and, like, young people, and, like... You know, people were just kind of into it, and you you could do a good job with it. So, like, there is a world in which they did, like, this awesome version of Spider-Man, and it had, like, awesome rock songs written by U2, and, like, also, like, the only good thing I remember about the show is that the stunts were incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, it was incredible to watch, like, somebody basically, like, scaling the entire theater and, like, jumping from the back of the theater to the stage. Yeah. That was crazy cool. So, like, if it had just been, like, basically a Cirque du Soleil mm-hmm. um, of Spider-Man, mm-hmm. but, like, not Cirque du Soleil-y weird, but, yeah. like, very straightforward and badass, I could see it totally cornering, like, a younger market a family market. Yeah. You know, and you have to remember, Broadway's, like, dead in terms of art, too. So it's, like, it's mostly people who are in town going to see shows in New York. The biggest tourist destination probably in the world. I guess not anymore, because America's a shithole, but... It might still be. I don't know. (laughs) Should we just leave it there? We don't know anything, because America's in such dire straits. (laughs) But, yeah, that's... I'm horrified by both the things we talked about today. Heck, Yeah. I agree. Both the the banality of evil and... The banality of Spider-Man. The banality of Spider-Man. <laughs> I the, agree. And and poor... What I'll just end mine on is rip poor Tony Adams, who had a vision for a Spider-Man musical, and I would have been curious to see it, but he died in the Edge's living room. I know. And if they had only known that Tobey <laughs> Maguire would have beaten the franchise with a lead pipe with his performance <laughs> in Spider-Man 3. Yeah. In two? two? Spider-Man 2. No, I was three that I think that was the really bad one. And he gets taken over by the, the suit. That's the one. He's like an emo Peter Parker for a minute. Don't even talk about it with me. <laughs> I'm horrified. <sighs> oh, God. All right, well, go watch that movie and stay horrified. Stay horrified. Stay horrified.